dream. It was after reading book six when all the months come out and they're coming out on their astrological signs. And I dreamed that actually this ring is an astrological sign, but it's not mine, so I shouldn't be wearing it because I'm a cancer. <laughs> and then last night I dreamed that I was in an ice cream shop and all the Sundays were named after like Renaissance, early modern authors. So there was um, a Sunday that was named Spencer. And then uh, my other friend was eating a Sunday named the Fairy Queen, and I, and I was kind of sad. So those were my two dreams. So that was a dream about 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 having consumed the entirety of the Fairy Queen, and now there's well, no more. Somebody consumed it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you consumed Spencer. No, I didn't. That was someone else's too. Oh, that I was someone else's. In, they were eating it. You I weren't was, having a Sunday at all. No, I just tried a taste of their ice cream. What type of ice cream were we talking? I think it was Spencer actually Froyo. Oh, oh, come yeah. on, that's cheating ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Don't knock on my dreams. <laughs> um, did people bring Spencer? We were going to look at one other, we were going to look a little bit more. At, um, do you think or dream in I Am a Pentameter after reading Fates and I Am a yeah. No, I was just dreaming does, about ice cream. Does anyone else think or dream in I Am a Pentameter? Yeah. I once managed to write down um, a couple of iambic lines that I dreamt, and it turned out they weren't as terrible as I feared, but naturally they were not nearly as good <laughs> as I dreamt that they were. That's so weird. I dreamed that I was busy writing poetry, and then I woke up and I could actually remember a few lines of it, but it seemed to come so easily in the dream. <laughs> it's a funny like, thing what? about <laughs> dreams, how that happens. Yeah. yeah. You know, what if they... Maybe they could make a movie about dreaming and then dreaming within a dream and maybe then dreaming within the dream in which you were dreaming. Oh, God. And the maybe. guy who played Romeo should be in that movie. <laughs> that would make it all work. Um, no, it's true. Um, but remember what... See, this brings everything full circle. Um, Keats said, when talking about the poetic imagination, I think I quoted this for, to you before when we were doing book one, but... Um, I, I'll quote it again. The imagination may be compared to Adam's dream. He awoke and found it truth. And that's a, he's talking to, talking about an episode in Paradise Lost where Adam um, dreams that Eve is created. He's very lonely and he says to God, um, I'm really lonely. This is, you know, you kind of did all these really great things for me, but I kind of think you forgot an essential thing, which is that I need company. And God says to Adam, look at me, I don't have company. What are you complaining about? Which turns out not to be true, um, since, since God is surrounded by company up in heaven. Um, and Adam replies very graciously, um, that's true, but you're God and I'm not. Uh, you, can, you, you, you have all you need, but I don't. So God then says, well, I just asked you this to test you. Um, and to see what, how you'd reply, and you replied really well, so go to sleep. And then Adam says, and then I dreamt that he took a rib out of my side and made a woman out of it, and um, then I woke um, to find her or forever to deplore her loss. That is, he dreams of the perfect person, the perfect woman for him, the perfect erotic um, companion for him, but he's afraid it's only a dream. Um, and he's ready to mourn the loss of this dream. He dreamt, and now that dream may turn into mourning. Um, dreams are very important in Paradise Lost, um, and in Milton in general, and things to be aware of, um, partly because they're important in Spencer. 
because of Red Cross's dream. Um, but he um, then finds that she's there. The imagination may be compared to Adam's dream. He says, when behold her out of hope, not far off, such as I dreamed. And there's Eve. And so he dreams of, um, of happiness, and there she is. And so Keats then says that's what the poetic imagination is. Um, you imagine something and then you awake and find it truth. But Keats is also thinking of Arthur's dream of Gloriana in book one. Um, he also wakes up um, lying in the grass. He wakes up um, and pursues Gloriana, whom he will eventually find. However, not, because Spencer dies, he won't really find her until um, Paradise Lost gives the Miltonic version of the ending. You can see Paradise Lost as being to Spencer what Spencer is to Chaucer. Um, that is continuing the story with other names and in other terms, um, but continuing the story in one way or another. That's really important because Arthur then when he sees that fleeing Florina, he's like, ah, I wish she was Gloriana. Yeah. I seem to be just chasing, I just want her to be there, yes. chaseable. Right, exactly. Um, and as and yes, and so in Milton you get it, although briefly. Okay, what I wanted us to look at, go back to um, book six, Canto um, ten. Oh my god! What? We're not. We're just going to look at this very briefly because we're done with the Fairy Queen. We're completely done with the Fairy Queen. We're, we're right on target. We're not talking about the Fairy Queen at all. This is all off the record and unofficial. And by now you know that whenever we're talking about the Fairy Queen, we're in fact talking about Milton. Um, that, that, that anything one can say about the Fairy Queen applies, to use a very great phrase, mutatis mutandis to Milton. Do people know what mutatis? Not you. She's taken Latin. Um, do other people know literally what mutatis mutandis? You've, you've all heard that phrase, right? Um, Obama's war in Libya is mutatis mutandis, just like the first Bush attacking Iraq. Um, you've never heard the phrase mutatis mutandis? It is the most useful phrase ever, um, really. So has anyone heard it? I've heard it. Like you've heard it. Mean. So it's, all, it's when you compare two things that are kind of like each other, um, and you can say A is mutatis mutandis just like B. So it's not quite the same thing as saying A is just like B because it means it, it tends to mean its use means it needs a little tweaking. To make A just like B, it's not exactly the same, but it's close enough that with a little tweaking you can see that it's the same thing. That's what mutatis mutandis means colloquially. Literally what it means in Latin is, now Vina, huh? mutatis mutandis. Um, the changing... Um, okay, cha everything, ev anything that needs to be changed, changed. Changes, yes. Changed. It's, it's a past participle past and then um, uh, gerundum. Um, so, so colloquially it's like give and take, but it still misses the essence of that change. Yeah, but mutatis mutandis basically means you can compare any two things in the universe. Um, as long as you use the phrase mutatis mutandis. You could say, George Washington is mutatis mutandis just like 
um, that, um, that, that, that muffin wrapper. And it just means anything you have to do to morph George Washington into the muffin wrapper, morph it, and then what it's the same. Behind it, it? Yeah. So it's, it's, I think I quoted, I think it was in this class where I quoted uh, my son's view of anagrams. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's mutatis mutandis. Add a few letters, take away a few letters, and it's the same thing. And, and it's a, each is an anagram for the other. So basically, Paradise Lost, this is so cool what I'm about to tell you. Paradise Lost is actually literally an anagram for the Fairy Queen. If you take all the letters in Paradise Lost and all the letters in the Fairy Queen, rearrange them, add some, take away some, and they're anagrams of each other. So that's basically what this course is about, although somewhat more seriously. Whenever we talk about Spencer, we're talking about Milton. And in particular, when we talk about Calidor watching the graces, the thing that I want to point you to, again, we, we, I, we looked at this, but I really want you to notice um, this strange line in stanza 11. Um, so again, stanza 10, unto this place when is the elfin knight approached. And here I, I'm going to tell you a little um, thing about uh, Spencer, about the shepherd's calendar that you don't know. Um, this is page 990 if you have the Fairy Queen. Um, so when Spencer published the shepherd's calendar, um, the shepherd's calendar comes in its original publication and in all subsequent publications, comes with a critical apparatus that is, it's a little like DFW. It comes with footnotes. Um, and the footnotes are actually about as extensive as the text. But the footnotes are not by Spencer, supposedly. But they're by one E.K. The footnotes are signed E.K. Um, and it's been a matter of very hot debate who E.K. is. Some people think E.K. is Spencer um, pretending to be a stuffy scholar. E.K. sometimes gets things wrong. Um, E.K., by the way, <coughs> explains, however, that Spencer spells the way he does um, because of all the punning that he likes to do. Um, so, so even before Spencer publishes The Fairy Queen, he publishes a weirdly spelled um, book of eclogues called The Shepherd's Calendar with commentary by E.K., who says that among the things you have to do is pay attention to Spencer's weird spelling um, because he's punning in that spelling and showing roots and so on. Some people think E.K. is Spencer himself. Some people think it's his friend, Gabriel Harvey. Some people say we don't know who it is. Um, among those who thought it was Spencer himself was Shelley, who um, wrote poems in Spencerian stanzas and who also wrote some poems which he signed with the initials E.K., which he, Shelley, believed stood for Elfin Knight. So here's that E.K. again. Unto this place, when as the elfin knight approached, him seemed that the merry sound of a shrill pipe be pl he playing heard on height, and many feet fast thumping follow ground, that through the woods their echo did rebound. He nigher drew to wheat what mote it be. There he a troop of ladies dancing found full merrily and making gladful glee, and in the midst a shepherd piping he did see. He durst not enter into thopen green, for dread of them unwares to be descried, for breaking of their dance if he were seen, which is what happens. If he's seen, he sure it'll all scatter confusedly. 
as it does in the tempest, for breaking of their dance if he were seen, but in the covert of the wood did bide, beholding all, yet of them unespied, there he did see that pleased much his sight, that even he himself his eyes envied. And hundred naked maidens, lily white, all ranged in a ring, and dancing in delight. So what do you think of that amazing line? I think I've given you the right answer. What do you think of that amazing line that even he himself his eyes envied? <clears throat> what kind of line is that? Amazing. Amazing. Why, Julian? Why? What's so amazing about it? I'm so glad you feel that way. <laughs> Even he himself, his eyes envied. Yeah, Ben. Um, I mean, if we're looking at E.K. as Spencer, um, sort of, or at least suggesting that Spencer is somehow relevant here, um, you know, I mean, we have Spencer as Colin Cloud, but at the same time, uh, Spencer also as um, uh, Calador and even he himself as Spencer envied Calidora's eyes uh, and that, you know, this this particular image that he's created for Calidor, he wishes he could see himself. Okay, good, good. Um, but here what you're doing is splitting two aspects of Spencer. Um, which is which is fine, and what you're doing is is um, it's a good interpretation that, um, well, so this won't this won't still, this is such a familiar line now that it probably won't have the effect it on you that it had when I first saw it, but um, I saw a sign um, at the start of the Iraqi invasion. It's on a gas station in Arlington, but you've seen it many many places since. But the first time I saw it, the sign was "We support our troops." And the first time I saw it, I thought, that just doesn't sound right. Um, and then the reason, does it sound right to you? I mean, you've seen it so often that it probably is just, yeah, we support our troops. Um, I know what their politics are. Um, but does that sound right to you if you think about it? We support our troops? No, it's perfectly fine. It seems perfectly fine to me now, but what didn't seem fine about it the first time I saw it was that the we and the our are not the same, not referring to the same group. We means we who work in this gas station, um, we who own the gas station, we in this business. And our means United States troops. And um, what happens is the phrase our troops is almost a, a set phrase, just meaning US troops. and um, And you could just as well have someone say, we don't support our troops, and they would look unpatriotic because you would be, if you saw a sign that said, we don't support our troops, um, and you were angry at that sign, you would say the hour in our troops means me, too. But the we in we don't support doesn't mean me. And so what's odd, about the, what's odd about that sentence, even though we've now normalized it, but what's odd about the sentence is that you're using the same first-person plural pronoun twice in a sentence, we and our, but they don't mean the same thing. There's a split between the we, which is the few of us who are making in this, in this SUV or in this gas station or in this um, 
vegan co-op, the few of us who um, who work here, um, and then the hour is collective. the collective United States. Um, and that split, there's something like that split um, in, in um, Ben's reading of this, that you can have um, uh, Spencer both being and not being Calidor. But what if you take it more seriously still and say that here's a person who envied his own eyes? What does that mean? Yeah. That Calidor, the inside, and Calidor, the vehicle of his sight, are in a sense, there was, there's that sense of removal even from the body and the self which he envies because he wants to be the, the first thing that receives that beautiful sight. Yeah. But he's not because it has to go through his eyes before it comes to him. Okay, so there's a split between his eyes and the, between, the, between the seeing eyes and the self. And, and he grudges that distance. And he grudges the distance. <laughs> now think of this as an amazing one-line description of voyeurism, of both the pleasures and the frustrations of voyeurism. That is to say that his eyes are taking pleasure, but it's a pleasure that's total, but it's not a pleasure that he has because seeing means distance as well. So remember that, that word scopophilia that we talked about on Monday, Freud's analysis of love of looking. Um, it's a very, very common um, uh, by way of human sexuality is um, liking to look, voyeurism. That's why the porn industry is, is um, the biggest cinematic and also internet industry that there is, um, is that people really do like to look. Um, but there's something very odd about the combination of pleasure and um, frustration, pleasure and um, and non-fulfillment that you get in scopophilia, in looking but not consummating. Um, that's something that Spencer has been talking about over and over again, um, from the first, from the very first thing that Red Cross, that sets Red Cross wrong, um, that Archimago, the image maker, does to him, which is he makes him see or think he sees. Um, Una having sex with someone else. Um, that, that idea of seeing something that your eyes participate in, but that you don't. So in Calidor it comes out as he envied his own eyes. And to some extent that has to be an allegory or an emblem or an image of what literary or aesthetic experience is. You are presented with a world the land of fairy, the world of mythology, um, any world at all you want, but in particular the world of pastoral, a place where it makes you happy to imagine being there, but you can't be there. So you can, so your eyes see the images of that place, whether it's sexual or um, childhood or another world or heaven or whatever. It doesn't have to be sexual but it's particularly vivid in the strange fact that voyeurism is so widespread, such a widespread example of what, of, of what Freud called the perversities, 
Um, the word perverse in Freud, I should just say this because it's a technical term rather than a term of, um, of obloquy. Um, but the word perverse in Freud simply means turned away from its biological goal. So the biological goal of sex, says Freud, is reproduction. Um, the reason sex plays such a large role in our mental lives and messes things up so badly for us all the time is because um, it's as important as eating, um, but much more difficult to get. And um, therefore, but it's as important as eating because if you don't reproduce, um, then you die out. So only those organisms and creatures that treat sex as of prime importance in their lives will reproduce. And so, according to Darwin, um, the sexual drive is um, almost by definition going to um, only survive if it's central. So what's the sexual drive? It's the drive to reproduce. What does reproduction require? It requires heterosexual sex, heterosexual um, vaginal sex. Um, and yet, we see people engaged in, all, uh, in, in many, many, many different kinds of sex, or we hear about them, or we read about them, all the time. Um, and these are called perverse because Freud says the word verse means movement, um, and perverse means a movement away from the biological requirement for reproduction. So what perversion is for Freud, it becomes a term of obloquy after Freud uses the term, you, know, you pervert. But what perversion means is sexual um, aims fulfilled in a way other than, a, than an ordinary biologically predicted goal. And so it means a deviation. Again, take that word as technical, not you deviant, but a deviation from the goal prescribed by the biological imperative to reproduce. Scopophilia is perhaps the single most widespread perversity in that technical sense. Um, and the question why um, you have scopophilia, something that Freud spent a lot of time wondering about, and he has interesting answers to it. Um, but what Spencer is interested in, and I think what anyone um, interested in art is interested in, is the fact that the fictive world, the fictional world of art, is a world that, that readers and writers that's what we saw in the proem to Book Six of the Fairy Queen, the way through which this, um, the way through which my wandering steps I guide through this delightful land of fairy are so exceeding spacious and wide and um, and and sprinkled with such variety of all that can be seen by ear or eye that he forgets all reality thereby. Um, he forgets all the real-world things he has to deal with. There's a fictional world. If only he could live there, be in the Garden of Adonis, be in fairy land. But all he can do is imagine it. That's what fiction offers us, is a place to imagine being that we can't be. And that's also what pornography offers us. And that's what you get in Calidor. He envies his own eyes 
because his eyes are seeing all that eyes can see. His eyes are getting full sexual satisfaction as far as eyes can get full sexual satisfaction. If sex is a total relationship to another, which is what Raphael is going to say in Paradise Lost, Raphael in Paradise Lost, Adam says, um, Eve and I, we have sex, it's great, but you say eventually we're going to get up to heaven. Um, what happens to sex? That, I'm not so sure that sounds so good. And Raphael says, well, you know that we're happy, we angels, and without love, no happiness. And he blushes. And then he says, well, I'm not really going to tell you more, but just imagine what sex might be like if bodies didn't get in the way. And if you could get complete and total and absolute interpenetration of the beings having sex without being barred by surfaces. Imagine how good that might be, he says, blushing. Um, so that idea of complete sexual satisfaction means satisfaction of every sense. And so Calidor's eyes are completely satisfied. But he's out of it. He's watching. He's not part of it. We saw this earlier with Malbecco, um, who hears the sex that he's not having. So total sexual satisfaction would be like going to heaven or going to fairyland and being there completely, or at the very center of the fairy queen, being in the Garden of Adonis, a place Spencer has once been, yet I know by trial this garden all other pleasant places doth exceed, a place he's once been, but where he is not now. So that somehow the aesthetic relation is one of distance in which you envy the part of yourself that can join with the fiction, while knowing that the real you can't really do it. The part of yourself that's part of reality can't really do it. And if you try to do it, as Calidor then will, you destroy the illusion. The illusion requires distance. You can't touch the painting. You can't walk on stage at the play. You can't enter into the movie screen. You might be able to see Buster Keaton do it, but you can't do it yourself. Sometimes you can dream, but then you wake up. Adam dreams and finds it true. But when Milton dreams, as some of you know from Sonnet 23, I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. When Milton dreams, he tries to enter into his dream by waking up. How better to enter into a dream than to stop being asleep? Wake up. Make it true by waking up. Well, that really is what, what they, that's one of the games they, they toy with in Inception, the idea that, that you could somehow make the dream true. Um, that's what happens in Avatar, I guess. Um, wake up, make it true. But you wake up and you destroy it. That's what Calidor does to Colin Clout and to the Dance of the Graces. And, um, but envying your eyes 
that would be something like the courteous thing to do. Watch, but don't touch. Don't break the illusion. Enjoy the illusion, but don't break it. And so that somehow what we're learning at the very end of The Fairy Queen is that courtesy is not a trivial virtue, but a virtue of self-restraint which makes art possible. It's the optimal, which is not to say the perfect, relationship you can have to a work of art. Not perfect because perfect would be for it to become true. And you can't have that. Sorry? Like Galatea. Like Galatea. Like Galatea coming to life in Ovid. Um, she's not named Galatea, is she? Or is he's not named Pygmalion. That's, that's what it is. No, one of, no, I think she's not named Galatea. I think that's right. Isn't she? No, I don't think so. I think that's a different version. But at any rate, like the statue coming to life, Pygmalion creates a statue. No, he's not named Pygmalion. It is Galatea, but we, anyhow, Pygmalion creates a statue. He falls in love with it, and he's full of lamentation and grief. He's turning into Narcissus, almost, um, who dies of grief that he can't embrace the beautiful image that he sees. You'll see this, too, is important to Paradise Lost. Eve comes close to a similar kind of grief that the beautiful image that she sees when she looks into a pond has to be replaced by kind of scuzzier Adam. He's got his virtues, but he is a little scuzzy. Um, not so beautiful as Eve. And yet she has to courteously, Spencer would say, and she is very courteous, she has to courteously give up absolute <clears throat> immersion in the surface, but only the surface of beauty, in beauty that can only appear as a surface, only appear at a distance. And he has to give that, she has to give that up in order to enter the world. Adam has it easy. He dreams of Eve, and she turns out to be real. Eve dreams of Eve, too, in seeing her own reflection. But the Eve she dreams of is not real, and she has to satisfy herself with Adam. So that idea is perhaps in Spencer, and if so, it's in a way that I could actually endorse. Perhaps a return of a moralization of art in Spencer. That is to say that it turns out that the fairy queen, this fictional and fictive realm, has a moral quality. But the moral quality is what courtesy requires of our treatment of others, which is don't press too hard, which is be self-effacing. If you want to not to destroy, be self-effacing. Kalidor has a chance not to screw it up the way Guyon did, you could almost say. You get this unbelievably beautiful song in the Bower of Bliss, and then Guyon destroys it. He's not self-effacing. Kalidor would never have destroyed the Bower of Bliss. Well, he might have, but not Kalidor at his best. So Kalidor is at first doing the right thing, which is 
taking, accepting the burden of envy. That's what courtesy requires. Again, that's why the threesome with Corridon and Pastorella and Calidor. Courtesy is always at its most intense as a, in a love triangle where one of the three, one of the two rivals in most love triangles, has to retreat courteously, <coughs> has to defer to the other, has to defer to the other because, let's say, it's a standard love triangle of two men and a woman, and a woman has to defer to the other because that's what the woman wants. So the way to show the woman courtesy is to show courtesy to the other man, the one she wants. And that's the story of all narrative. That is to say, if you say that the most standard narrative, this is... Um, it's, it's a pretty, this is painting with a pretty broad stroke, but nevertheless it's true. Um, the most standard narrative is uh, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back at the end. Um, lots of things can be boys, lots of things can be girls, and lots of things can count as getting, um, as the two of them coming together at the end. But that's the most standard of all narratives. Um, it's what every fairy tale is about. It's the soldier marries the princess. Um, it's Red Cross marries Una. Um, that most standard of all narratives, our relation to that narrative is triangular. For such a narrative to work, we in the audience have ourselves to be in love, whatever that means, with one or the other or both of the happy couple. We want to see Fred Astaire happy. And what will make him, because we love Fred Astaire, how can you not? What will make him happy is Ginger Rogers. Or we want to see Ginger Rogers happy because we love Ginger Rogers, how can you not? But the only thing that will make her happy, even if she doesn't know it, which is standard in those movies, is Fred Astaire. So in those cases, we're in Calidor's position. There's happiness there that we take happiness in, even though it's happiness from a distance. That's the story of narrative, is happiness from a distance, which is optimal but not complete. Because they live, ha they live happily ever after, but we have to go to class and take a quiz. Our lives, they get the happy life, and we're happy for them. And that somehow is what the aesthetic relation is, and that's what Spencer is um, describing here as courtesy. Um, he gets this ultimately from the Knight's Tale, or, or most recently, most proximally maybe, from the Knight's Tale in Chaucer. Uh, there's a movie called The Knight's Tale. Has oh, anyone seen it? Yeah. Yeah, it kind of stinks. Yeah. Um, but it gets the title from The Knight's Tale, and it also gets its tagline kind of like from The Knight's Tale, which is two guys, one girl. You do the math. Um, that's true of Chaucer, too. Um, and um, the idea is that 
one of the guys wins and one loses. The loser is always us in the audience in that scenario. But it's also causal because, like, the block number two just falls in love with the girl because block number one likes her. Yeah, that's the, there's a there's an aspect of mediated desire there, but that's our relation too. We fall in love with Ginger Rogers because Fred Astaire is in love with her, and we see her with his eyes, mm -hmm. and then we envy his eyes and envy our own. Um, we envy Ginger Rogers for being with Fred Astaire. Yes. That's yeah. our relationship like narrative. You don't like her? No, it's just, it's envy, really. Really, it is. Like, That's I fascinating. Like yeah, but don't you want to see him happy? I want to see him happy with you me. <laughs> I know, but here's the choice. Here's the choice. Either Ginger Rogers really does marry Bedini and Fred Astaire just looks mournfully into his beer, or I mean, they dance. Yes, I would like to see him happy. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 I think that's, I think that's the point. That's our relationship with narrative, isn't it? That we love these people and we interpose ourselves there and we want to see them. Yeah. Now, I'll, I'll just tell you, since, since we've gone this far and since um, no one reads Freud anymore, which is a real shame, um, and people are just suspicious of Freud and think that he's crude and silly, um, the ultimate situation that's being described here, and I think that Spencer is describing, and that's why Arthur and Gloriana are so central to the framing of the Fairy Queen. The ultimate situation of um, experiencing representational art, whether a movie, a play, an epic poem, um, any kind of story. Think of the situation. The situation is that it's very weird that there is such a thing as representational art. It's a very weird fact about human beings. That is, if, you, if we went to um, Alpha Centauri and found a society there, we would be surprised if they went to, um, to plays or saw movies, if they had the equivalent of what we had. The reason we'd be surprised is it doesn't seem, um, it seems almost accidental that there is such a thing. Um, and what seems accidental about it is that we get emotionally involved. That's what's happening in Calidor. We get emotionally involved in something we know isn't real. You go to a horror movie, and which is which is a, a particularly um, crude but effective um, version of what I'm talking about. You go to a horror movie. And, you know, when it gets really scary, what do you do? You look at your watch, you look at your feet, you remind yourself that you're in the movie theater, that it's not real, and it doesn't do any good if the movie is good. You know that it's just light on a screen. If you go with your, with your parents and you start getting scared and, and you say, I want to go, and your parent will say, no, 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 it's just light coming out of a projector. It's just a screen. It's just light and shadow. Don't worry about it, knowing it doesn't help. Um, or you're reading a mystery novel and you just don't know whether whether Dumbledore is going to survive or not. That's not a mystery. <laughs> In a way, it is. I mean, the but you just don't know what's going to happen to Dumbledore, um, and it's not going to help if your clueless mother says to you, "How can you get so upset about these fairy tale characters who don't even exist?" Um, and it's just not going to help. Um, and But if you think about it, it's weird that that's the case. Now, how can we put this weirdness? We can say that the weirdness of representational art is... Are you skeptical that it's weird? No, 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 no. I completely yeah. agree. And 
I'm thinking more of like having fallen in love with characters. Yeah. Oh, good. Yes. Yeah, yeah. A thankless task, but at least one where they'll never reject you. Yeah. <laughs> they'll never say to you. It's a they'll never. Rejection, they, they will never say to <laughs> Hannah, Heather. <laughs> they will never do that. Um, they just won't. No, but we do fall in love with characters. It's true. Now, here's the situation. We're experiencing. Here's what might start looking like a, like a psychological explanation of this, a Freudian explanation. This isn't Freud's explanation, by the way, but it, this is my explanation, but it makes use of um, some Freudian ideas. Um, that what we're looking at is a very interesting situation in which we feel that Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers are present to us. We see them, they're interacting, they're together. Um, Red Cross and Una are present to us. Britomart and Artigal are present to us. We care about them. They're right there. Oh my God, what are they going to do? They're present to us, but we're not present to them. That's why all we can do is look and listen. Why we can only, I know it's sad, but why we can only interact with them at a distance. Now, I think that situation is actually a very, very archaic situation in the experience of all human beings. And that's a situation of early childhood. That is to say, what happens, it's not true, but it's the way we experience early childhood. In a typical maybe not a majority, but a very large minority of cases, and typifies, um, typifies what happens to everyone, unless you're like a Romanian orphan, um, and you don't have this experience because you don't have this experience of adults at all. But the most anxious situation for a little child is when its parents are angry at each other. Parental, when daddy and mommy are fighting, that's worse. doesn't feel worse, but it is worse. It goes deeper than when they're mad at you. When they're mad at you, they're on the same side, you know, you can, what you can do to make things better and so on, you're part of that. But when they're fighting, they're ignoring you. And all you want is for that to stop and for them to make up, to come to a happy ending. So the situation is one, psychologically, where they're present to you. Their emotions are tremendous and frightening, and they're giants, like people on screen, like Orgoglio and Disdain. And they are interacting with each other in ways that are emotionally extremely fraught for you. And what you want is a happy ending. And the happy ending is that they'll make up. And that situation, present to you, but you're not present to them. They take no notice of you. Even if you start crying, they pay no attention, or they just put you in another room. That situation is the situation um, that gets repeated and um, exploited by works of art. That situation of wanting something to be better. Not that you'll be part of it, it's the opposite of an Oedipal situation. The Oedipal situation is, oh, mommy and daddy are kissing, and I want to be kissing daddy. Um, 
why is mommy in the way? That's actually the Electra situation. The Oedipal situation is, and it's sometimes the Oedipal situation too. Um, but that's, the, that's a standard Freudian view of our relation to our parents is we want to get rid of one of them and take that parent's place. Why Ginger Rogers? Why not me? Um, but worse still than wanting to take a parent's place is when the parents seem to be rejecting each other. That's even worse. It Partly it's, it's worse, according to Freud and according to Klein, because it feeds into our guilt. We wanted that, and now it's happening, and we feel like, oh no, how could I have wanted this to happen? Um, but what we want is for them to make up. And when we see a movie, when we read a book, we also want that to happen. Between Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, between Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint, um, we want that to happen. We want that reparation or reconciliation to happen. I think that the relation of scopophilia to art is one that Spencer is thinking about and which has to do with that structure, even though he doesn't give the explanation I've just given. And maybe you could argue that he does, but I wouldn't. I mean, I'm not making that argument. But the structure is one in which all we can do is see them without being part of it. And nevertheless, that's something. If we could be part of it, we would be our own eyes. The way to be totally into what you're looking at is only to be your own vision. Only being your own vision, being reduced to vision itself, is a way of being part of what you see. But since you're not reduced to vision yourself, you have your eyes, but there's the rest of you, you can never be part, entirely part of what you see, but being partially part of what you see, that's what art gives you. That's both what's good about it and what's frustrating about it and what Spencer is describing in the poem to Book Six of the Fairy Queen and what Milton will have Satan notice when he first sees Adam and Eve. So part of this is a marker, and we're now talking about Paradise Lost, but we'll um, circle back to Lycidas tomorrow, but part of this is a marker for Satan's response to seeing Adam and Eve. And his first words when he see them, it sees them are, anyone know? Oh, hell, what do mine eyes with grief behold? And he says, I could love you. He says, not so they can hear, but he says, Ah, gentle pair, who my thoughts pursue with wonder and could love. So much shines in them resemblance of their maker meet. So watch for those Spencerian ideas in Paradise Lost. For tomorrow, Lycidas, for Monday, Comus, and then we will um, really be catching up.